Okay, let's go ahead and jump into week seven of our journey of Job. And again, this is the conclusion. This is this is the conclusion of, of the book of Job, of what's how everything ends. And we're going to hear God finally answer Job. That for the entire book, we've seen calamities happening to Job. We've seen suffering happen to Job. And he, we've seen him cry out and lament and scream at God. And now finally God's going to show up. Finally God now is going to show up and talk about, uh, give him an answer. So again, we've mentioned this every single week. But what is this book all about, right? And so if we had to sum it up, the entire book of Job, it is, does Job worship God out of genuine love or because of God's blessing? Right? Do I worship God because I have a house, because I have health, because I have uh, financial security, whatever that may be, even in this times of, of not understanding what's going on with the disease, do I really worship God? I mean, what if all that were taken away? Would I still look at God and say, you are good and you are all powerful, right? And that's really what's going on. And so what we see with Job is we see that he loses wealth, he loses health, he loses uh, 10 kids, and just the grief and the sorrow um, and I've been wanting to say this, and I, it's kind of an obscure reference, but in the original Batman, it came out in 1989. Uh, uh, um, obviously, I was a little boy, but the original Batman, Batman with Michael Keaton, there's this scene where it's actually uh, uh, Jack before he becomes the Joker. I forget his last name, but um, there, he's with his boss, and his boss, you know, he, he's like, I don't want to go to the chemical factory. It, the smells, you know, they get to me, and and his boss grabs him by the shoulders and he goes, Jack, you're my number one guy, right? And that's, that's kind of what God does with Job, right? He, he goes and he says, yeah, Satan, have you not considered all the people in all the earth? Have you not considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He's my number one guy. And after Job loses everything, everything, it says in Job 2.10, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So we looked at last week of what happens. He kind of has these uh, conversations back and forth with the majority of the book of uh, 4 through 37, where he's having conversations with his friends. And there, we've looked at the bad theology of suffering within that. But then we're going to see God finally answer Job. That Job is screaming out, crying out to God, and God's finally going to answer him. But before we jump into really the, the passage in the text, I want to go back, and I want to look at some other aspects of God. And there may be some of you listening or watching on here that might think the God of the Old Testament is simply a God of judgment and wrath and pain and vindication, but the God of the New Testament is a God of, of mercy, right? God is love, and, and we get Jesus and, and all these different things in the New Testament, and, and we forget that God doesn't change, that there is still judgment within this God to punish sin. And so I want to go back, and I want to I look at a couple stories within the Old Testament, not just Job, and I want to be able to look at that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment, but what does that mean? In the New Testament, the word judgment is translated, and I'm not going to get into all the Greek, but that Greek word is where we get our, our word crisis, right? Crisis. That's something that we're probably all familiar with, but it's crisis. If you look up the definition, the whatever you call it, the uh, 
from the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary, the definition is it's the turning point for better or worse, right? So something happens and it's right, you could picture, think of any book, any movie you wanna think of, that there's this, there's this moment that happens where it's like, what's gonna happen, right? Is it gonna go well for this individual or this people or this community or is it gonna go bad? Is this gonna go south here? I don't really, I don't really know what's gonna, gonna happen, right? And you can think of any book, any movie. I asked my wife just this morning, I was like, hey, what's, what's one of your favorite movies? What's one of your favorite books? And uh, so go ahead and type it in. If, if you want to type in one of your favorite movies or books, I will try to do this. We'll try to, we'll try to highlight it because I know there's a little bit of lag. So I'll talk about, it, about this. Angela mentioned Remember the Titans. I'm only going to take the first one that I know and recognize. She said Remember the Titans, right? And, and I was trying to think, okay, what's this moment, right? What, what is this moment in, in, in a, any movie or in this movie, specifically Remember the Titans, uh, where, where is it going to go good or is it going to go bad? And, and in my mind, it's that moment where Gary Bertier, he's the, I think he's the middle linebacker or the uh, right side linebacker, uh, right outside linebacker, where he gets in a car accident and gets injured, right? And so this, this boom, like this major character, this major player gets injured. What's, what's going to happen to the team, right? Are we going to not remember the Titans anymore? What's going what's gonna to happen in this moment? And, and, and what happens is even though he gets in this really bad accident, the team reacts, right? They become closer together out of this. And so it's negative and yet it's also positive. And we actually see that within all of these, uh, all of these, mo all these movies or any book. Okay. Here I've got, I've got one here, the Avengers Endgame. Um, okay. All right. Let's talk about that. The Avengers, we could take any superhero movie, specifically Marvel movies, and we could say, what's, what's this crisis that happens? Well, Again, would a superhero be a superhero without a villain, right? And so and you could look at any, any crisis when, when we have, uh, what's his name? The guy with the weird wrinkly chin. Uh, I know someone will type it up in a minute, but uh, uh, anyways. Oh, you've got mail. Amy, I got to throw. That's great. Um, see, the, the, well, okay. See, now you're, now you're missing me up. The crisis in that movie is when uh, Tom Hanks actually realizes who Meg Ryan is. Right, that he knows who she is, and he's just messing with her the whole time. It's it's great. It's fan. What's he gonna do? Is he gonna walk away? If that woman were as attractive as a mailbox, I would be insane not to turn my life upside down and marry her. Right? That's a that's a quote from when he before he sees who she is. All right. Endgame. We look at right all these superheroes coming together, and if it wasn't for this massive villain, they wouldn't come together. And this is this is true, right? And this can be good and bad both at the same time. And that's what a crisis is. That's what it means. And that's really what judgment is. That, that God can't judge somebody without somebody being the beneficiary of that. All right. And we see that all throughout scripture. But before we do that, I want to talk about, yes, thank you, Matt Almquist, Jurassic Park. Okay. That's this prop. It was a prop for today. Well done. Jurassic Park, right? And there's this scene, right? And I think the crisis moment, there's a lot of crazy crisis moments, but there's this one crisis moment that's Right. I don't care when you watch this movie, if you've ever seen it, even if you haven't, I'm going to explain it and, it. and it's freaky. There's this scene where there's these two trucks. They're actually uh, Ford Explorers. A lot of people think they're Jeeps. They're not. They're Ford Explorers. And um, the power goes out and they're they're running an electrical grid. The power goes out and they get stuck right in front of the T-Rex, right? The Tyrannosaurus Rex. And, and the T-Rex is behind the fence and... And what happens then, they're, they're sitting there in that car and something's about to happen, 
right? The lawyer gets freaked out and he runs out, he runs into the bathroom and, and Dr. Grant goes, well, when you got to go, you got to go. I uh, hope there's some toilet paper in there. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and they, and so anyways, what happens is the T-Rex though, the power's out. And, and Ian Malcolm, he's a, he's a, a doctor, a scientist who's been saying, this is a bad idea. We don't know anything about these dinosaurs. They could just run amok and kill everybody. And what happens, the power goes out, the T-Rex busts, busts through the electrical fence because it's off, right? And it's now standing there in between these two, these two trucks, these two SUVs, and the T-Rex stands in it, and it just, it just roars, right? It just shakes the whole scene. And Ian Malcolm has this line, he just goes, he kind of whispers it, but it's one of my favorite lines from the movie. He goes, boy, do I hate being right all the time. <laughs> right? right as the T-Rex busts through the fence. Here's the crazy thing about this, and this is why I bring this up. You have this incredibly powerful T-Rex, this T-Rex who in a moment is going to eat one of their friends, who's going to destroy the cars, who's going to make them flee, who's just going to just crush everything in its way because it's so powerful. And yet, at the end of the movie, there are these other animals called velociraptors, and they hunt in packs like wolves. And they're only about six feet tall. They're much, much smaller than the Tyrannosaurus Rex. But they have all of our heroes, uh, Lex and Tim and Dr. Sadler and Dr. Grant, all cornered, in case I, I know this movie quite quite well. Uh, and and all these uh, velociraptors have, have this family surrounded. And guess who shows up? Mr. T. Rex, right? The same T-Rex that they feared, that they were afraid of his power, shows up and eats the velociraptors and thus saves the heroes of the story. It's actually pretty cool. And so we see these crises moments happen all over the Bible. We see these uh, crises is plural. I had to look that one up. Crisis? Crises? What crises is actually correct. We see him all over the Bible. We see God's mercy and his judgment. We see God's grace and his wrath. We see that the T-Rex will destroy and that the T-Rex will save their puny, insignificant lives. We see this uh, first off, right off, right off the bat, right in, right in uh, the Garden of Eden when we have Adam and Eve as they're living in harmony with God and they're walking with God in the cool of the day, and it's just this beautiful harmony. And what it says is that, that in their sin, right after they commit the first sin, that God bends, bends low, right? And he actually has to kill an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. And, and so while he's bending low and he's caring for his humans and his people that he loves so dearly, there's also in the same breath a curse for all humanity that we are suffering from today. The fact that we're doing this on Facebook Live is proof of this. And so here, right there, we have this both and. I, I've felt that this week. I've maybe kind of, of a silly thing, but I've been on, on my knees crawling around with my kids a lot more, right, than I normally do because I'm home, I'm playing with my kids, and I have, I have ruined two pairs of my jeans, right, from bending low, playing with my kids. I've which is great, awesome, I get to spend time with my kids, and I've also ruined, ruined my, my jeans, right? Kohl's is not a necessity right now, and so are non-essential, and so uh, they are closed, is my guess. That's one. Another story that I want to highlight, though, is the Passover. And in the Passover, God gives detailed instructions of how his people 
are going to escape God's wrath upon the Egyptians, right? He's going to judge the Egyptians. He's going to judge the evil so that he can save his people, right? He's going to say, take a lamb without blemish, and I want you to shed its blood on your doorposts and mantle, and then I will pass over you. This is the same Passover meal that that Israel and the Jews even to this day still celebrates. Why it's called Passover, because the death angel or the spirit of God is going to pass over you. My judgment's going to pass over because you have this lamb. But in order for there to be mercy on those that display the blood of God or the blood of this lamb, that there is judgment on their oppressors. We, we see this all, through, all throughout scripture. Passover yells. It screams out to the world that God is a God of judgment and that he is just in his punishment towards evil. This is what Job wants, right? Job has been crying, where is your justice? Where is the good in all of this? Why are you punishing me, God? You should be punishing evil, not me. I haven't, I haven't done anything wrong. And so that is why Job cries out, right? In Job 31, 35 through 37, he says, oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictments in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step like a prince. I would approach him. Well, Job, you got your day in court. Let's see how that's going to go. So Job, starting in chapter 38, God is going to answer him says this, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And I just want to even just try to even picture that, just some massive storm, right? Henry's old enough where uh, we every time it used to thunder, um, I would always kind of make it light, make a joke of it. You know, it's the lightning before the thunder. And we kind of laughed, but now it's like we had our first storm just a couple days ago. And he freaked out, right? And we had, a, I mean, we had one that, that shook the house, right? And just imagine God, that's God's voice, just powerful as thunder. And he says this, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Whoa, right? Can you imagine Job's response at that? Like, oh, I think I've made a mistake here. But imagine being in any meeting, right? And you're pitching a plan, pitching an, an idea to one of your bosses. And he goes, who, who, who is this that pitched an idea with words without knowledge? <laughs> right? Could you imagine? And that's just a, could you imagine God saying that out of thunder? And then he says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you. And you shall answer me. And then he says this, I love this. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or, or what were its footing, where were its, where were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? I mean, God is laying it on real thick, right? And he's going to give then 
after the 73 more sarcastic questions and sarcasm is, is a light way of saying what God is doing right here and the questions that he's asking Job. And so I just want to, I'm not going to read all of it, but I want to highlight a few of my, my favorites uh, from this passage of God just displaying his power. He says this uh, in, in uh, 38, 19 through 21. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Like light and darkness. And then I love this. He says, oh, surely you know, for you were already born. <laughs> A joke. You have lived so many years. Like, come on, I mean, come on, Joe. You've, you've been around a long time. Clearly, you must have figured this all out by now. You must know. Job 38, 31 through 32. Just think about the power that God is displaying here. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades, right? These stars, these constellations. Can you loosen Orion's belt? <laughs> I love that. Can you, can you take this constellation, Orion's belt, that, that all of culture, I mean, the whole world, they all have mythological stories behind this Orion's belt. I actually did a little bit of, of, of looking at, I didn't know this, the right soldier, soldier the right shoulder of, of Orion in the constellation is, is actually Beetlejuice. Um, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Hey, that's the second uh, Michael Keaton uh, reference. Uh, his, his belt, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the names. I don't know where, what language it's in. But the, the three going across, I guess they're all uh, very similar in distance. They're about uh, 800 to 1,000 light years away. Uh, their names mean belt, uh, belt of pearls, and girdle, which is another name for belt. Um, and, and he's saying, can you loosen Orion's belt? Can, can you bring forth the constellations and their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? That's uh, actually Polaris. That's um, the North Star or the, or the Big Dipper is, is part of the bear. Another one in Job 38, 31 to 32. No, that's not correct. It uh, must be 39, 13 through 18. It's kind of cool. It talks about the ostrich. He says this, the, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs in the ground and sets them in the warm sand, warm sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them or some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers, and she cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense, yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Right, God... Do you have any idea why I made the ostrich so stupid? Right? And yet, do you have any idea why it is so stinking fast and it runs on the ground, even though it's a bird? And it's like, why, Job? Do you know why I did that? No, you don't. And so God is going to stop in chapter 40, and he's going to say, I'm going to stop asking these questions, and he's going to address Job again. And he says this, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. All right, and again, he's like, whoa, I, I'm not accusing you. And God's like, oh, must I remind you? In chapter 31, verse 35, you said, let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Yes, Job, you have accused me. Answer me. So Job addresses God. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. H how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I say no more. And then God is like, do you, do you, do you think I'm finished? 
I don't know, Joe, we're just getting started, and he's going to go on for two more chapters. But he says this before he starts explaining and describing his power. He says this, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Again, brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. And verse 8, I think, is the crux. Maybe we would say the crisis of this book. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Job is crying out, I've done nothing wrong. And yet he experiences suffering and death in his life. And here he says, would you discredit my justice? Do you think I've done something wrong? And by doing that, Job, are you condemning me? Are you condemning your God in order to justify yourself? And a quote from R.C. Sproul, he says that verse, this question, this is the question that every Christian has to face in the house of mourning. When you're suffering, this is the question that we all have to ask. In order to justify myself, are you ready to condemn God? In order to say, God, I'm suffering for no reason. Am I ready to say, I think, I think you're wrong, God? It's a question that we have to ask. Again, God asks in verse 8, would you discredit my justice? And again, justice doesn't just mean vindicating and lifting up and saving one. It means punishing one to vindicate the other. And there's something that Job can't see. All he sees right now is the T-Rex ripping thing everything to shreds and crushing everything with its feet and its jaws. And he can't even see down the road that it's the same T-Rex that's going to save my life. So Job then replies for the last time. And he says this. Then Job replied to the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked God, you asked me, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Who uses words without knowledge? Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. I know a lot of you know this, and, and I've mentioned this all throughout going through the book of Job, of that uh, the process of losing my, my, my dad to cancer. And these were the verses right here in Job chapter 42 that I recited over and over and over and over. I do not understand things too wonderful for me to know. A positive way of maybe saying that is I now understand that there are things, God, that you do that are knowledgeably beyond my comprehension. Like, God, you, you are doing things with knowledge at the end that I can not understand. And it actually really ticks me off that these things are happening. But God, you answered Job out of the whirlwind. You showed him that you are powerful. And you aren't just this T-Rex that destroys everything, you're also the T-Rex that saves. You knowingly do things beyond my comprehension. And I have to trust in that. Job goes on and he says, 
God, you said to me, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me, Job. And Job responds, with my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Right? He doesn't actually see God. He says, therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. What is he repenting of? Right? What is Job repenting of here? Has Job sinned? Has he done something to bring these calamities in his life? No, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. That's a really bad view of suffering, that if I do this thing, God is just waiting to punish me and to crush me. It's, it's bad. It's bad theology. I think instead, he's repenting, right? He doesn't repent of the sins that caused the calamities. He repents of his mistrust in the midst of pain that God is, is allowing these things to happen at best. He's allowing these things to happen at Job, to Job and to us. Do we need to repent of our mistrust in the midst of pain? The same way Job does, but the story doesn't end here. There's actually restoration that is actually going to happen. So in Job 42, 10 through 17, let me just read these verses and make a couple more comments. It says, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him at his house, and they comforted and consoled him over the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kezia, um, who's uh, betrothed to my son Jack. Uh, she's in our church. The third, Karen Hapuch. Now where, uh, nowhere in all the land were found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their fathers granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. So after this, we don't know how old Job was when all this happened, but uh, this was a long time ago, and people lived much longer then. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died, an old man full of years. Let me, let me say something real quick about this. If anyone who tries to use these verses as some kind of prosperity gospel, right? Hey, everybody. And don't you see what God did for Job? Job, Job put his faith in God and God gave him twice as much. And it's garbage. That's not what this passage is talking about. He's not just saying, hey man, hey, give, give the church $10 and God will, will you plant that seed and God will give you abundantly much. No, that's not what's happening here. Because do you think for a minute that there weren't nights where Job didn't put his head on his pillow and miss his other kids that were dead? Do you think there was any moment that would ever go by where he would say, I actually would have rather not have done that. This is not prosperity gospel. This is God restoring Job and giving him blessing because God is merciful, not because Job deserved anything. Because Job feared God and then God took everything from him. And so therefore God, in his undeserved grace, restored Job, not, right? And some of us might be screaming out and asking, that doesn't, that's not fair. You're right. 
It's not fair. It's not fair in our minds when we only see the T-Rex who wants to destroy. We don't see the rest of the story, the other side of the T-Rex that's going to save my life. So again, we see God of judgment, not just in the Old Testament, not just in the creation story that we looked at, not just in uh, the Passover meal that we looked at, not just even in Job's life. We see this in the New Testament. It's what the whole Bible is about. And we can look at all these tiny, little, and maybe even seemingly insignificant crises all throughout the Old Testament. And it's going to completely destroy this huge huge crisis that's going to happen on the cross. In Romans chapter 3, 25 through 36, says this, and I'm actually going to read from the ESV because it uses some language that we've already talked about today that I want to highlight again. It says, Jesus, whom God put foot, sorry, <laughs> Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, right? A payment by his blood, not by a lamb's blood, not even by my blood or your blood, but by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That God says, I love you so much, and right now you only see me as this destructive T-Rex, and I'm telling you, salvation's coming. It's coming. And I'm going to pass over those sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, at now, on this side of the cross, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because right? there's always judgment. There's judgment for those who don't have faith in Jesus. That's what the Bible is. And if we could boil it down, it'd be a statement like this, that salvation is by God. Salvation is from God. In the sense of, I need to be saved from God's wrath. And the only person who can save me is God to himself. It's a crisis. There's good and bad on both sides of it. Again, we see these Christ all, all over the Bible. We see Christ is all over the Bible. We see God's mercy and his judgment. We see God's grace and his wrath. But in Christ, it is both mercy and judgment. It is both grace and wrath. And as the Father pours out his wrath on his own Son, it is only through Christ that God also pours out his mercy on us who put our faith in him. And salvation is by God and salvation is from God. This last week, I had a, a friend of mine, Joe Swords on Facebook. He's a pastor uh, out in uh, Michigan. And he did this kind of fun game. Just go and grab the, the book closest to you. I don't want to know a title. I don't want to know anything about it. Look at the fifth chapter and, and the fifth line down or page 56, fifth line down is what he said. Uh, I tried to do it, but the, the book I happened to grab that was closest to me was just a blank page. It was like the end of a chapter. And so I didn't get to participate. I, so I don't know where this quote's from. I probably could have Googled it and looked it up, but I thought it was kind of cool not knowing. And this was one of them that popped up, though. This is the key point of theology of the cross. God is most present where he seems most absent. And I thought, man, that's, that'll preach this Sunday. All is lost. God is dying on a cross. 
And yet in the same breath, all is one because God is dying on a cross. So you don't have to. Martin Luther, again, my boy, he um, has this quote. He, he talked about why he would read through the Bible uh, entirely every year. Right? You don't need to do that. Uh, it's great. I, I would recommend it if, if you haven't done that before. But he did this for a reason. Because he, he said, I get so lost in the, the minute details of, of a leaf. I look at the, the veins running through a leaf, and I, and I look at the structure of this leaf, right? In other words, the words and the grammar of a specific sentence and the Greek and the Hebrew behind it. I get so locked into that thing that I forget that that little leaf is part of a, part of a branch. And that branch is part of a tree, and that tree is part of a forest, right? And what I want us to do is, is today is step away and look at the forest and see this huge redwood tower above everything else and say, that's the cross. That's what all these things in this forest are pointing to. They're screaming at that of the victory of Jesus, and he wins the victory over death and sin for me, for you. Luther says this, I want to keep the winds of the whole substance of Scripture blowing in my mind as it helps me understand each and every detail. So he says, study the words, study the, the little details of it. But keep in mind the whole story. That the God of the Old Testament isn't just a God of wrath. He's a God of love and justice. And the God of the New Testament isn't just a God of love. He's a God of judgment and justice. Both just and the justifier. So finally, in conclusion, gospel application, do you worship God because you love God or because of his blessing? Or would God, could God ask you, are you in the midst of your suffering, are you just trying to justify yourself so you can condemn me? So what he asked Job. And finally, will you join in the suffering of the Savior to join in his exaltation? He suffered so that he could be lifted up. Can we join him in that, in this dual process?